Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Listen to the Thin Green Line podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Game wardens John Norris and Wayne Saunders talk about wildlife, the outdoors, law enforcement, environmental subjects mixed with current events and guests that are part of the Thin Green Line. And if you are one of those visual people like me, for $5 a month, you can see the actual podcast on Patreon.com. Just search the Thin Green Line podcast on Patreon.com and join us. We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join HuntOfALifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit HuntOfALifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from Game Wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves Game Wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Episode 57, The Continuing Case of Kate Matrasova. And this has been quite the series, John. It's been, uh, this will be number four. We're going to finish up with number five. And it's hard to split up all these interviews and such, so I'm trying to find my timing. And this timing uh, right now is going to be Sergeant Mark Ober, then now who's took my spot, Lieutenant Mark Ober, 
talking about a lot of the command and control and what's going on at the base of the mountain as the rescuers sure. are involved up there. Certainly, it's been engaging. Having the author on has been awesome. I think we're opening a lot of eyes to this type of hiking, this type of thing. And I think we're, I've had a lot of emails saying how much people are paying attention to how much they are prepared when they go out, even on a day hike. And I think that's resonating. Yeah, the whole thing is just preparedness, you know. That particular loss that we had with with her was crazy. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and definitely there was a lot of ill preparation and a lot of us are guilty of doing that, myself included. But in, in the wake of what you might encounter, you know, physical hazards outdoors, <clears throat> a two-legged or four-legged predator, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Absolutely. Got to be prepared for. And then, of course, you know, we we go into this a lot, especially on uh, our Thin Green Line podcast on just the survival preparedness you need for everything from COVID, self-sustenance um, that we've been dealing with and all those things. And yeah, this, <laughs> it's such a gripping story. I mean, it's, mm. it's sad. It's provocative. Um, it's eerie as well. It's all those things roped into, roped into one uh, tragic story, but it, there's a lot of lessons out of that. And the pauses we derive from that are just being prepared. We, we learn a lot of what works and what doesn't with the right gear in the outdoors, how to sustain yourself if you are injured or lost for multiple days at a time and how to survive. Yeah. And, and Cody Stamen actually talks about the mental preparedness that thin green line, and that's, that's going to be a continuation the following week. And and that's exactly what you need to get with search and with, with as far as a search and rescue missions and b being a hiker, you have to have that mental preparedness of mind, being able to and it's being able to accept limitations, and that's hard stuff for type A people like you and I and some of these high end business people. We, we we don't know when to quit. We don't know how to fail, nor do we want to. So, and the weather was was the key that day that that won. And it's so unfortunate. You can prepare, but not knowing when to quit is something. And when you don't have that experience in the outdoors yeah. and know when to quit, that that's something else, which I, I don't think we focus on because we're not quitters. Yeah, that's the thing. You know, you mentioned weather, Wayne, and I think of all these very driven type A, well-prepared Everest climbers, you mm. know, or some of the extreme mountains when we're really talking about, you know, uh, hypoxia and, you know, uh, your body slowing down and dying at a certain elevation, no matter how good you can climb and how many, you know, climbers have lost their lives that were really good climbers, had really good gear, but just pushed it a little too far because of weather. And uh, it's hard to turn back, man, but it's a life or death deal. And in this case, in, in this particular case that we're talking about, it certainly was. So I mean, it's something we all got to have a little bit of, take a little piece of humble pie and mm. realize that uh, mother nature is always tougher than us. No matter how well prepared we are, how well equipped we are, how mentally tough we are, mother nature is still going to kick butt if she wants to kick butt. There, so, there is no um, doubt. That's, that's a hard, that's a hard, that's a hard pill to swallow. And I've been there just like you have in our careers and in extreme weather conditions. It's tough. Yeah, and I've been listening to you and Jay on the Big Buck Registry talking about your your hunting and the Montana hunting and how it differed. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the cold, running out in snowshoes for an hour and a half to get to the spot where no one else is going to be. And then sitting, uh, being that sniper and the temperature dropping and I could feel how cold you are <laughs> because I've been there and I understand that. Oh, yeah. But, uh, that's, yeah. but that was a wicked good, probably the... And of course, I'm prejudiced here. I think that was one of the best interviews that you've done because we saw some different aspects of you and that you and Jay have a relationship as our producer. I, I thought that that podcast really clicked and, and did really good. I'd like to encourage everybody to listen to that because it was really, it was, I, I think it was the best one. Of course, I, like I said, I'm, I'm very opinionated just because I know both of you, but a lot of right. uh, personal things came out. Yeah, I agree. It was one of my favorite of all time to be, you know, to be straight up. And I had never talked about big game hunting directly to my favorite stories ever Mm. publicly. And I mean, hadn't written about them, you know, in any books or magazines, very little had dabbled there, have never actually told anybody in public what it was. And man, Jay sure had all the right questions to pull some good stories out. Yeah. So it it was fun. And that's kind of cool. You know, it's kind of cool for people to see why we're conservation officers. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I talked about, you know, being this lifelong hunter from nine years old with dad. And then all of a sudden I become a game warden. And what do I start doing? I start hunting big game and, and just going after those conservation sports less and less. Cause I start hunting bad guys. And from about 21 to 30, I did very little 
actual conservation field of table hunting. I was just hunting bad guys, trying to be a good game warden and, and get my, uh, you know, get my experience down. So when that thing got nuclear after that and all those big hunts worldwide started to happen, especially really getting to know the Montana mm-hmm. uh, hunting method in that deep timber, as, as you heard about on Jay's podcast, it was fun to tell that story and relive it. And I got to admit, man, it brought back a lot of memories and brought back a lot of feelings from being in the moment and how hard it is to hunt big bucks, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, it's not always a gift wrap like some of these stories. Uh, you know, some very lucky individuals get. I'm not one of those lucky guys. I got to work my tail end off and get skunk 90 percent of the time. So, those were special ones, man. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Yeah, no, it was it was very dynamic, and you guys hit hit a lot of interesting things. And you're right. It, it's boy, I think your trend is the normal life of a conservation officer. We get in it to it, and then for those first years, we focus on catching poachers, catching bad guys, and then we start to settle down, get get our feet underneath us, and then we start going back to the outdoors and things we love to do. Uh, I, I am just starting to break back into hiking because doing it for work, it wasn't enjoyment. And, you know, again, snowmobiling, uh, uh, trying to break back into snowmobiling, doing right. these things you did for work. Because I, I tell everybody, it, it, no matter what you do, because I used to get that question all the time, man, I wish I had a job like yours when I was on a snowmobile. And I don't think they knew exactly what it entailed by, you know, working 12, 14 hours on a sled, freezing your tail off. And yeah, it, it is fun. Don't, I don't want to get anybody to get me wrong, but everything turns into a job eventually. Right. And, and now right. I'm trying to turn it back into recreation. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, 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 it's a tough transition when you ebb and flow back and forth. And it's, uh, and I always look at it now, you know, in, uh, in phase two and retired from operations. I mean, I spend a lot of time in the woods scouting, putting trail cameras up. I'm on the West Coast right now in California and turkey season's on, right? So mm. out there chasing turkeys just to, just to clear the head and try to stay in the game. It, it's a real good balance. Otherwise, everything else does become work. It does become uh, heavy. It becomes sometimes arduous and sometimes it can be, you know, kind of a passion buzz kill. So, you know, we, we got to stay in the woods to stay balanced as conservation officers or as podcast hosts. So um, mm. a big part of keeping that passion for what we do here in a podcast forum is making sure we do it out there and go back to our roots and remember what we're out trying to promote, protect and, and network when it comes to the great outdoors. Absolutely. And I want to explain people what Patreon is too, because I'm getting quite a few questions about Patreon. So yeah, pa- one, yeah. yeah Patreon is a, a pay site. So $5 a month, you get extra things from us. You get to see all these videos. So right now, John and I are zooming we uh, do this podcast via Zoom. I record on a mixer right beside my computer, and it's been working out good. So we took this this content that we're creating, and when we have guests on as well, they're, they're via Zoom, so you can actually see the podcast. And then we threw other things on there. Uh, John has some extra videos. I have some extra videos. Some of the content you don't see, and it's, it's all uncut too, so it's raw stuff. And you get a lot of little extras in there for, and I call it the, co- the price of two cups of coffee a month. Uh, at $5 a month, you get all this extra stuff, and it supports both the Thin Green Line podcast and Warden's Watch podcast. And it, it helps us continuing to what we're doing, telling these stories, doing that. So it, it's kind of a support system, so to speak. We're going to do this live event for our members so they can ask questions and stuff, and I'm hoping uh, everybody will become a member. That, that's that's our goal is to get as many members as we can to, to be able to do this stuff for you, to get that extra content, to be more engaging, and uh, continuing on our podcasts. So. That, that's pretty much it in a nutshell, don't you think, John? Yeah, and the the, big, the biggest thing about Patreon is just getting some engagement with our listeners and viewers. You know, mm. this first live event on the coming up uh, at the end of April is going to be amazing because you guys are going to have us as a captive audience to pick our brain on anything you want, mm. and that's where the Patreon membership really gives you something back. You know, we we certainly can't field questions twenty four seven from all. You know, where are we at? We're at almost one hundred eighty thousand downloads. I just yeah. uh, calculated. For the other day between wardens watch and thin green line and we're very blessed that you guys are listening and and coming in and and joining into wardens watch now from outside of traditional game warden worlds mm. you know the hiking community um just outdoor enthusiasts uh, just other law enforcement conservation professionals we're getting a real mix of listeners and viewers and the out, out, outside of our normal conservation officer circle and what i like about that wayne is now with patreon 
everyone has a chance to to get face to face with us and we're not going to do just one of these live q a's we'll have more and more mm. as membership drives it so we want you guys as listeners and viewers to know that the more you subscribe the more you participate and engage with us the more we're going to be able to engage on a more personal basis with you guys as a way of saying thanks Big gratitude to y'all and mm. also expanding the thin green line even further. Man, that was said well. The continuation yes. of Kate Matrasova. And this will be uh, almost the last one. This is, uh, and the next podcast will be, be our final and our wrap up on this uh, little series we've had. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish, it's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. So I have a guest interviewer, Ty Gagne. The author of Where You Will Find Me is actually going to interview me today. Because if you noticed on podcasts, it's really difficult. And my first podcasts are all me talking. And I was told I had uh, a talent for talking for a long period of time without taking a break. But it's it's really awkward. So it's kind of great to have Ty uh, interview me because I want you guys to get a feeling of a search manager and what we do. Some of the guys will tell you, we just sit in a truck and we stay warm which is very true, <laughs> but th- there's a lot more to it. So I'm going to let Ty uh, interview me on this Warden's Watch so you guys can get a feel regarding the Kate Matrasova case that, to, to what goes on behind the scenes in a serious search and rescue mission with the, the command and control, basically. So thank you, Ty, for doing this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank thank you very much, Wayne. Am I supposed to thank you for joining me today, or <laughs> do we just move that, on? That, so, that's great. I yeah, yeah no, yeah. Uh, I'm always happy to join okay. you, man. <laughs> All right, as long as uh, you pay for too. lunch. Uh, okay. <laughs> Hard to do right now, virtually, but at some point I'll catch up with you. No doubt. Uh, so, I just to just to start. I mean, you had a long career in fishing game, and for for most conservation officers, that involves you know getting out in the backcountry and searching and even in urban environments, depending on the situation, how does, how does one evolve into the role of search manager? Um, and knowing that there are times when the team leader for advanced search and rescue team isn't present, or even a Lieutenant might not be present. How does that, how do you get to that point? Yeah, that, that's, that's a great question. I'm glad we're starting there because it is a process. And, you know, even as a trainee, the department tries you tries to put you in every situation possible when it comes to a search and rescue mission. So maybe a search and rescue is going on a different district. They have a tendency to send the trainees for the experience. So you may go all over the state for search and rescue missions, carryouts in the whites to lost kids on the seacoast, uh, to urban situations. I've done this town or city of Conway uh, several times for searches uh, and through urban areas too, through backyards, buildings and, and things like that. But it's, it's a process that you start from the ground up. And that's the best learning position I think you can have because you've been on the ground. You have done these line searches. And as a game warden, and even as a game warden trainee, you're responsible usually for a group. So in a big search, they will assign you a task along with a group of people. And you have to manage those people on the ground. And in a line search, if people don't understand what a line search is, people stand not necessarily shoulder to shoulder. That Ideally, we would want you shoulder to shoulder and walk through a piece of woods. So everything in that woods gets covered. You can say with certainty that there's nobody there. That If you can see you know, 10 feet to your right, 10 feet to your left, then that's where searchers spread out and you walk through a piece of woods. So you can say with general clarity that we covered that area and then you radio back to the command post and tell them and you give coordinates and this this has been developed since my tenure because you know gps's were just coming on the scene you know 25 years ago we were just starting to use those and they weren't so available that every officer had one so the ones we'd have would put one on at the beginning of the line and at the end of the line and then when they would download 
into their database. They would know whereabouts they would cover. And even before we were downloading, we were highlighting. And uh, Lieutenant Bugardis is known as the highlighter. So that was, that was kind of his nickname because he'd always carry these highlighting pens. And he would highlight maps uh, to where we covered. And, and even to the end, we, we do that too because we can take those coordinates and swath and then we highlight colors so we know if they've been covered. That kind of coined uh, the Lieutenant Bugardis is as the highlighter. You'll get a kick out of that. I shared that with everybody. But we, you know, we start at that basic fundamental search and rescue mission. And from the beginning, we're organizing and we're operating on a person-to-person basis, a search and rescue team. Now, when you go to a carryout, it's a little different or a rescue mission where there's been an incident, you actually have a location of the person. You go up there and again, you manage. And sometimes you manage people that have skill levels higher than you. MRS comes in, AVSAR, and some of those people have skill levels, especially medical levels, higher than you. So when it's medical, definitely those guys have to say, hey, you have the highest medical you know, training here. You're in charge of that. But overall, the game warden, regardless of you know his rank, is in charge of that mission that's on the ground. And generally, there's a supervisor, whether it's a sergeant, a lieutenant, or even a senior member can run a search and rescue mission. And they're usually at the base or somewhere location so they can have radio contact. And, you know, when you're in the field, it's funny because all these... Uh, the search managers, lieutenants and stuff ask you questions and it just, you know, they're just sitting there asking you questions and they're not, they're asking for a reason. But when you're in the field, you think they're just asking questions to ask questions and you're, you're busy and you're doing this and they're just sitting there asking you questions. And that's not the case. Uh, but, you know, as field operators, we're like, geez, every 10, 10 minutes, you're asking me something, you know, where are we at now or what we're doing now? Uh, where's my location? I'll ask GPS, you know, I'm like, but there, there is a reason, and we find that out later, but especially with a carryout and depending what the severity of the injury is, of course, head injuries and heart injuries are, are high-level things. We want to get there. We want to get there quick. But we want to see if we can facilitate air assets if possible. The beginning of a search and rescue mission, regardless if it's search or rescue, is very, very, very busy for those search managers because they are on the phone. They are trying to coordinate things like a, a lot. And that's the nice thing as you go through your tenure as a game warden, you start to see more and more of this. You start in the field, you start by managing people in the field, you start by doing those line searches, you start by organizing those rescues and, and getting up there. Even if you're you know, a 23-year-old game warden and you're the only one on scene on a carryout, you're in charge. The, the law says you know, you're responsible and you have to take charge and that's hard sometimes for you know a young guy to do and I've had to say hey even though I know they're doing good but you need to make decisions and these are the you need to take all the facts into consideration if there's a supervisor on scene you need to ask these questions and then you need to bring it to the search and rescue unit you know I've, I've been on searches that things have been unnecessary but I got there late and couldn't undo them and wouldn't undo them at that point, but had I done it, I would have done a different way. Uh, just looking at a map, there was an easier way to, you know, take somebody out of that area just by quickly looking at a map saying, hey, look at this terrain compared to the terrain we're already on. And just pulling that officer aside and saying that there was just a better way. Uh, not to saying this is wrong or bad, but there's a better way. And, and that's your responsibility to, to look at that and try to look at the best way to get these people out the fastest. Sometimes there's shortcuts that we, we know about. Sometimes there's shortcuts we map uh, and we, we, we pass that on. Hey, if you're going to do something in the Hoosics, uh, there's a shortcut here that, that bails out right down through this notch and comes out right at the dump in success. And that, that's a really one that's been passed along and uh, we can get on the Appalachian Trail fairly quickly that way right there at, at that spot so that's something you know i passed on to mark ober and something he knows but i was actually on rescues carrying out that way and that's how i learned that it's a process and then you start getting into the management more so maybe if you're a senior officer or a sergeant sergeants have become more and more valuable i see through the years as managers because we're teaching them to take our jobs and when lieutenants aren't there 
they're doing that job. So it's really imperative that you teach them and maybe even teach them early, especially senior officers. I know senior officers that I would be more than happy to put in charge of a search and rescue mission until I got there or even totally because they have their tenure, they've been around, they've worked from the ground up, and they know generally what needs to be done. Doesn't mean it's done everything to what you would do. No, but you got to accept that they're individuals and they're making decisions and you got to accept their decisions too, because that's what being in command means. You got to make decisions and right or wrong, you own them. And I know that's what, you know, Mark Ober made some decisions on the Matrasova thing that, you know, some people questioned and he owns them right or wrong. He, he owns them. Those are the decisions he made. I know I've made many a decision that has been questioned and right or wrong. I, I made them and this is why I made them at the time. Does more information come in later uh, to make it better? Probably. Uh, but that's, that's the real key is information and you're trying to get all the information and then get it out to people, communication, that command and control. And you learn that once you, you know, I remember my first few times in a, in a search and rescue operations center, it's busy, especially if you're, I'll call you the sergeant, you're the gopher, you're the guy that does everything. You're the guy that, you know, I, I had to run, Lieutenant Bagardis asked me one time, I had to go pick something up from the Black Hawk pilots. For some reason, I had his keys and I grabbed his cruiser and I drove over there. Black Hawk landed and, and these Black Hawks threw out some serious air and I got sandblasted and going up to it, it was in the Wildcat parking lot at the ski area, going up to that. And I don't know if I was giving them something or they were giving me something. I fo- and I forgot what it was. Maybe it was coordinates they wrote down or something that Lieutenant Bagardis wanted to. And I, I mean, got just got sandblasted, and I got back there, and I'll never forget the look on his face. And he cut, he knew what happened already, and he's kind of chuckling. He goes, "Huh? Did your truck get sandblasted?" And I said, "No, actually, it didn't. I took yours." Yours did, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I just love the look on his face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, Can you uh, talk a little? Oh, go ahead. No, it's just it's it's a learning process that I I think. Yeah, you couldn't come on fishing game and be a sergeant, be a lieutenant, and be thrown in charge of that without all that training of years that goes into it, experiencing search and rescues from minors to majors. Um, And Mm -hmm. they're very different from a minor to a major, but they still have the same nuts and bolts to start. From a search manager perspective, how much weight does the search manager, the incident commander, put on past hiker and past mission parameters when looking at one that's directly in front of them. I mean, how much how much of that perspective and that experience is brought to the next one? Let's say you're in Franconia Notch and you know you're looking for somebody up on the ridge and and how much weight do you put into past ridge related rescues? Quite a bit. Quite a bit. Um and it's that experience, especially like wind direction, because wind will push people away and where they end up. Um you know, historically, Dry River sucks in a lot of people off the, the, the presidentials. And it's just mm-hmm. the wind direction and the way, the way that pushes them in. So my past experience knows if we're looking for somebody on the ridge, I'm already got a weather report looking at the wind direction and where where is the wind going to push them. Certainly we talk about in the Cape Matrasova case, the, the winds, they were extraordinary and the wind had a lot to do with the direction that pushed her pack after she was recovered. Uh, the wind had, when she was walking into the wind, had effect to the point where she couldn't walk. And the wind pushes people. It just pushes people to below tree line. That, that's huge. And then you look at the past rescues in those areas, and you can look back historically, or you almost instinctively know where to start the process because the weather was such that night and the wind was, you know, 40 miles an hour gusting out of the, you know, the Northwest. And now I know to look into Dry River because historically, and once you go over that lip, there's, there's no going back. It's, it's down. It's so much easier to go down than up. Historically, that's where we're going to go. They are in the middle of nowhere and it's very, very, very difficult to get them. And there's also no radio communication there as well. So when you start dealing with search and rescuers going into that area, you're going to lose communications with them as well. So, but that's, yeah, it, it takes a lot. And again, you learn that through the process of being on these search and rescue missions so much and, and, and dealing with them that it almost becomes, it becomes easy 
because the more experience you have, the more you can read a situation. Just uh, e- even you know people biting off more they can chew. You get those calls Sunday evening at six you know p.m. and there are distraught distraught people on the other end, and you know that you know that you hear their itinerary from point A to point B, winter time, and I'm thinking, yeah, about two more hours they'll be out. You know if nothing happened. I say, and I and I say, you know, in about two more hours they should be out because they are overestimating, and I kind of overestimate my two hours because I it's probably going to be an hour, but that person's not going to wait two hours. They're they they are a loved one and they are cranked right up. So, but generally they'll wait an hour if you say two. If I said one hour, thirty minutes would be the max. So I always I push that envelope too. And I would say 95% of the time I was correct. And I'd call back and mm-hmm. they were out and they had bit off more than they could chew. Yeah. I used to call it dragging my feet to respond but because that's my gut feeling tells me everything about this person, they're fit, they're, you know, they're experienced, um, but they, their time frames were wrong. They started too late. Uh, they planned on being out too early. Just looking at the time frames and the conditions, I, I, if I drag my feet, this is going to clear itself up. And generally it did. I, I've got a letter from a father that was beside himself that uh, wrote uh, Colonel Garabedian and said, Sergeant Saunders was absolutely right in what he did. And it was hard for me to accept that at that time, but uh, he was right. It was kind of a good letter to get uh, based on, you know, something that wasn't a big incident, but to him it was. It was a big deal, and to deal with those emotions from loved ones is really difficult when you tell them to wait. (laughs) It it just doesn't, they don't want to hear that. They want to hear you got the National Guard flying for their loved one, dealing with people, and that was sort of my expertise as, as I came along because of the critical incidents I was worked with is that's what my expertise became in the search and rescue layout with multiple lieutenants and such because um, you're right the the search and rescue chief the lieutenant that's in charge of search and rescue comes in and he takes over he's the ultimate even though if you're the lieutenant in the area you defer to him for because he's the next step up he does all the search and rescue but you work side by each working together and you fit your roles, and that that was the role I generally fit in to most search and rescue incidents because I had the most experience in that in that manner. Mm-hmm. So, can you take us through Sunday night, February fifteenth, two thousand fifteen? You get a call from from Mark Ober, and I one of the things I picked up on in our conversation, and then your conversation with Mark is you don't like to get the call the night before. So, talk about getting that call. What follows a call like that? If you're not responding right away, it's going to be the next morning. And then maybe walk us through the initial approach with, with Mark in the parking lot that morning, moving to Randolph Fire Station and and then coordinating a search. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because I listen to those podcasts and I hear myself say that like, I think two or maybe three times that my rule was don't call me at night, call me in the morning. So Mark broke that cardinal rule that night. And the, the reason for that rule is your brain already starts working. Sergeant Mark Over calls me at 10 o'clock that night and says, uh, this, this looks bad. I think it's going to go into tomorrow. I don't sleep. My brain is firing on what I need tomorrow. And then we start going through that list, um, you know, of what we need tomorrow. And Mark starts that list, and he, he calls for the command post out of Concord so that he's got that rolling. You know, what are we going to need for resources? Uh, did you put AVSAR on standby? Did you put MRS on standby? Uh, how many people are we going to have? All this stuff starts then, and that's why call mm-hmm. me at 5 o'clock in the morning because that's what's going to happen. So all that night, I didn't, I didn't sleep. I didn't sleep thinking about this, feeling, you know, hearing the wind outside my window, thinking about somebody out in these conditions. It, it's, it's very, very unsettling. That's why I made that rule is so I could get a good night's sleep because it's important as you roll into the next day because these things can last a long time. If they go into several days, you're working, you know, 16, 20 hours and getting a couple hours sleep and rolling right back into it. So that's that's why I kind of made that rule. So it wasn't my brain wasn't firing, but I know how Mark was. Mark was like, "Oh, this is bad." I, you know, Wayne needs to start thinking now. He wants me to start early, which was probably a good decision. And now, the continuation of the interview with then Sergeant Mark Over 
And now, Lieutenant Mark Ober. What point do you call me? Um, well, I called you that night. Uh, I know. And so this all started, I probably called you somewhere after I called. I think the colonel actually wanted me to call you. Yeah. Because so. I always hated getting called at night. <laughs> call me in the morning at yeah. 4 or 5, that's fine. But. Gave you a heads up that night yeah. after I called Jim. Both so I didn't sleep the whole night. It was Jim great. Goss, Jim Neal, and the colonel. And I don't, I think I just said, hey, if we don't call you, or, or if, I w- I'm not going to call you. I remember distinctly what you said. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, okay. You remember that. But yeah, you called essentially me. Essentially, I'm like, if I don't find her at 1 o'clock, if, if yeah. we realize 1 o'clock in the morning, do you want me to call you then or just wait till 5? Yeah, I said wait, didn't yeah. I? Yeah, don't don't call me back to tell me you didn't find her. Yeah. I'll just plan on being there. But I, I distinctly remember you calling and said, hey, we're on a search and rescue mission, and this doesn't look good. Yeah. I'm almost sure it's going to go into tomorrow. Yep. And for you to say that, I'm almost, I'm betting it's tomorrow. So, and then you gave me all the information and yeah, I didn't sleep a wink that night. Yeah. And I think I rolled in at five-ish and you're there. Yeah. And we start making those plans. Yeah. Uh, setting up those. But, but maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but you said when those teams <laughs> came out, they were, they were, they were frozen. Yeah. Pretty much all frozen solid guys. Huh? The only team, um, the second MRS team had only gone, made it about halfway up the trail when, when the word came down that. Where they left there? Where they left the litter? Yep. So they left the litter there, and they came out, and, and then Matt and Bob's filtered out, and and of course the four uh, of the initial team went came out somewhere around three, maybe three a.m. I think they got out. Right. And so at that point, everyone's just so cold and miserable. They just want to get in their cruisers and warm up mm. or their their vehicles. Right. So not much of a, a really a debrief at that point. Right. <laughs> other than being just totally cold and miserable. Mm-hmm. And I and I remember when everybody. The last person had driven away. I was still there. And then I think around that time, and, and so at the same time this is going on, I've got a constant uh, phone tree going with the Air Force Rescue Coordination Center. Right. Because the beacon goes to them initially, and they, mm-hmm. they call it, call us. And so I'm on the phone. Every time they get a beacon hit, they call me. For some reason, there was a lull in, in the action where there wasn't, they weren't able to get beacon hits, and suddenly they get a bunch, which were on the other side of the ridge, yeah. now in the Great Gulf. So I remember thinking there was a bunch of them, five or six of them all in this area, kind of going down um, like the Osborne Trail, I think it is, on the other side, heading into the Great Gulf. And so in my mind, I'm like, well, did she make it over to the other side and is now coming out that way? When everyone left, it's like three o'clock in the morning, I drove over to the trailhead, Great Gulf Trailhead. Mm-hmm. And I sat there for a while thinking, well, Maybe she made it down, and, and this is going to be her right. only way out. She bailed out yeah. and dug herself and a she, cave. And, and a, so, which was wishful thinking, but that's what I did. Oh, and that's what we do. We and have I, wishful thinking. And I might have gone back. Actually, I think I went back and forth between Appalachia and Great Gulf a few times just mm-hmm. to essentially stay awake and to keep keep hope alive that she was coming out in one way or the other. But, yeah. Yeah, and you had ordered the, the command post, the state command post that we use, yep. which was awesome <clears throat> because that was a... a, a place yeah. that we could work out of that had phones, communication. Yeah. And I remember you and I, when I met you, we went over to the Appalachian Park a lot thinking that we would park it right there and be in close proximity. <laughs> and then a gust of wind came up and it was a total whiteout yeah. with, you know, the, 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 the temperatures were still extreme. And I remember you just looked at me and you're like, ah, oh, this isn't going to work. And I'm like, no, you're right. So we retreated back to Randolph Fire, which was in the lee of the wind. Yep. And we parked that there and had a place for our rescuers to change and stuff like that. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA... We make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. And then the day of uh, organizing the search for me and you took place. Lieutenant Goss came up. Well, and another thing, too, that when you you asked a little while ago when I called you, when Mm -hmm. did I call you? At the same time, I think I had called Avsar and a couple other agencies to get them prepared, ready to go for the next day. Just in, in the event we didn't get her that night, and so everyone was sort of in the loop, just kind of waiting. And I, I forget this, but I'm sort of remembering it now of, of just the flurry of of making calls at five o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. to everybody. They're calling you back. You're on the phone. You have to wait 
because you because you know call them back when and well, you're getting when, beeped in as you're talking beeped to in one. all the time oh yeah afrcc's calling me mm-hmm. uh civil air patrol's calling yeah avsar's calling mrs is calling you're calling the colonel's calling <laughs> jim's calling oh yeah it was yeah the life of a search manager is it's is pretty intense and that's a lot of people don't see that end yeah. of it is organizing this is it's a, it's a feat yeah and the the the, the more severe the more planning uh, sometimes the longer it goes, the more planning yeah. too. And not to mention uh, her husband. Right. You know, because I, I obviously talked to him the day mm-hmm. before. Right. Because um, when you arrived, you actually had an, you I, went and saw and interviewed him, correct? He, um, I think he might have come. Or was he at the trailhead? He might have driven to the trailhead, but it was so cold. I mean, he. Right. And you had talked to him on the I'd phone. Ca- I t- I've talked to him on the phone. I, you know, t- to be quite honest, I don't know if I actually saw him. Or just talk to him that night. Mm-hmm. He might have come over a little bit, um, but if it, it wasn't that long of a conversation because I was so busy trying to organize everything else. Yeah, and he gave you, but the forehand when he, when you oh, actually yeah. called him, yep. he gave you her whole itinerary. Her whole itinerary. She was prepared, had done Mount McKinley, you know, all this, all her previous experience, and had been up there earlier in January, and what her plan was, and yeah, it just wasn't uh, wasn't feasible. <laughs> it wasn't feasible. Oh. And and you know all through the night, I don't think I I really called him much. I just said, hey, it's going to take a while. Right. It's it's I can't give you any updates for a while. So, but that's again the next morning. All these calls you're going to make, he's definitely one of them. Right. And then that's where you come in. Right. And you and, sort of take that role, which is right. great. Yeah. And I think our first meeting with Charlie, you came with me. Yes. And we actually met with him and kind of give him what we were doing. But we got to get everything ready. We got to get oh. things going because that's the time you prepare in that 5 a.m. to, to 8 a.m. to yeah. get all those calls, to get everybody there as fast as you can. And it is just, you know, even with two guys doing it, and Lieutenant Gloss rolled in and he took over the, the Air Force stuff yeah. and started the planning process where he started handing things off to us when needed. And we all worked together really good, but he was planning, you know, the taking which teams were going yep. where and yep. how, and we were handling all the other stuff. I mean, there was a sergeant, two lieutenants, and uh, uh, Frank from U.S. Forest Service came over and was a huge help that day Frank, too. And uh, and and um, Frank Karras, he was uh, just a wealth of information and just it was a great help. And he's on the MRS yep. team. And Brad Morse came to help Goss too in the, in the command post. Yeah, he was running communications in there. So yeah. A lot of guys, a lot of people came. I don't know how many ultimately. It's it's in the report, I'm sure. But mm-hmm. and then you're right. Which teams are going where? And, and yeah, the capabilities because we were doing below tree line stuff to start because the weather was just a oh. scream on top. We had Civil Air Patrol flying, <laughs> and they weren't flying low. They were no. flying miles up, taking T- photos miles. They, up. they could. They had to be ten thousand feet because they couldn't. It was the wind was too much. Yep. The wind was just too much. They couldn't operate, and they took some. Crazy photos there. Just I want to say the wind, the other, the nighttime was was the worst, as far as the wind and the cold goes. But it wasn't that much better in the day. Yeah, and I remember being a bright blue day, blue skies. But the wind and cold was. And the snow that that was blowing, too. I'll blowing never forget that whole yep. parking lot going totally white <laughs> as we're having a conversation about whether they're going to deploy here or not. Yep. And that just answered that question instantly. We both looked at each other, and you're like, yeah, this isn't going to be a good spot. I'm yeah. like, nope, you're right. So let's move on. So that was uh, a very difficult thing. And then to deploy all these crews and all these spots. And I remember Lieutenant Goss getting frustrated and talking to the Air Force and saying, I need, give me one point, <laughs> yeah. one point. You and get- that's... He got frustrated with the Zulu time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which I didn't. I knew what Zulu was being by military, military. So yeah. it didn't, but it frustrated him to no end. And mm-hmm. um, and they don't work on that there. They have to do the calculation in their head because these the AFRCCs always works off Zulu time. Uh-huh. And they're in Florida or they were in Florida, yeah. So they're, they're on the uh, uh, one hour behind us anyway in the time zones. Mm-hmm. So they have to try to calculate in their heads our time mm-hmm. which to me I, I could do it but jim apparently couldn't so yeah no, or, it or like, it's just yeah it's frustrating when you're not used to it i, I see it yeah no, no doubt all the acronyms and everything that comes yeah. along with it certainly I, I, I would get frustrated with it too but he was <laughs> dealing with it and when, once he got that one spot it was the initial spot they said yeah focus on the initial yeah the initial deployment i think also another another team had obviously come in mm. to replace the initial right. team that got the and so some i don't know what happened but 
whoever, I, I want to say, and I could be totally off base, but I want to say the next crew that looked at the information figured that the initial spots or beacon was most likely where she was because they got several other their other spots or, or hits there at that point. Mm-hmm. There was and some that's in what that Jim general area. was able to get from them mm-hmm. that morning. Even if I had that information at night, I don't, I don't believe we could have got anyone there. No, not, I, not safely. No, no, not at not, not a chance. What was it negative ninety the second? Cold negative this ninety with hundred, hundred something mile an hour winds, just yeah. consistent, constant, yeah. not not just a gust here and there. Right, and if anybody's tried to walk in heavy yeah. winds, it's just it's it's it, no, it's impossible. It was even when they got possible to reach her. That even night. when they reached her that morning, they were getting blown around. Mm. And I think they were down to sixty mile an yeah. hour winds gusting. Yep. So it wasn't even sustained. It was gusting up to 60. And yeah, that some of the rescue teams lost their feet. Yeah. Going. So certainly that they, they located her at the original point or close to it. Yep. Uh, we're able to take her off the mountain. Uh, we had a fallback point of uh, the Madison Hut mm-hmm. where we had a team trying to get in. Trying to get in. <laughs> so, which th- there's a lot of things that I actually good that came out of that you know one thing we changed the locks to extreme weather master locks and everybody has a key now as far as fishing game goes and in case of emergency we need to deploy a team we can actually use that and we hope the locks reminds me i gotta remember where my key is okay (laughs) i I handed mine off to you so i think i gave it to glenn he has it he should anyway right i think sergeants had a whole set of their own keys so yeah that's why you gave mine to glenn yep Mm -hmm. every sergeant lieutenant had had their own key in case we needed those and uh you know, according to AMC, they are working well. They've they've yep. opened them up in the winter and they've actually worked well. So yeah. my hat's off to Master Lock for making extreme weather and, and <laughs> you know, surviving the, the dredges of Mount Washington. Yeah. The other thing we did, we did a lot of training after that on those uh, oh. personal locator beacons. And we started to understand them. Not that we liked what we were understanding, right? but we, we started to understand them so we could uh, perform better and take <laughs> the, the best information and work with that. Not that it would have helped that night at all. No, no. But yeah, a lot of things, you, you different makes and models and, and different companies and and the fact that the antenna is key. Antenna, the antenna essentially has to be straight up and down. Straight and not up being, and down, upright. It can't be. It has to be deployed that correctly. Yep, correctly. It can't be moved. The wind, if it's if it's in a windy situation, it's going can't, back and forth. Can't that's be in the backpack. That's what throws those faults. Yep. False uh, coordinates. Yep. You have to put that antenna straight up and down and have it deployed right there and let it go. And yeah, can't throw in the backpack and move. Or So one thing we, we got to mention too is obviously I had been I had worked all day, been out all night, and I think the colonel ordered me to go home somewhere yes. around noon. <laughs> so I so from noon to when she was found, I, I wasn't there. And I think you called me somewhere around four or five so yeah. that you guys found I remember I had to tell you several times the colonel told you to yeah. go home yeah. so go home well one uh, thing that I, I don't I, I guess I, I I wasn't there so I don't know but in the, in the cruise that were on scene so could probably talk to this better but all her gear was still there mm. there's a few items that weren't there I think she, like Charlie mentioned she had an ice axe maybe or some trekking poles which we never found right but her GPS was in her pack I think and, her, and the, 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 the personal locator beacon was in her pack right so that means she actually got it out, hit the button, and put it back in her pack. Right. Which, in that extreme cold, I mean, Bob and, and Matt were having a tough time with their fingers. In, dexterity. When dexterity. So how she managed to do that, I'm not sure, but she did. Mm-hmm. And herself, every, everything was still there. Right. Except for a few of the, the other items. Her selfie stick with her, her uh, uh, camera. camera was there. Um, all these things that you would think would get blown away. Right, that wind, that but, wind, but it was right there. Yep. Well, certainly. So, and I was just, I, I always will wonder how she managed to get because at that point in time, I think Ty makes a pretty good quotation in his book is when he mentions that she was essentially just letting people know where she was at that point, where the name of the book came yeah. out. Because, so. because really at that point in time, when you when you need to deploy that that locator beacon and hit that button in those conditions. That's all you're really doing is letting people know or try to let them know exactly where you are because yep. there's no rescue at that point. Where you will find me. Yep. Mm-hmm. No rescue. Not with a helicopter, not with teams. And that probably that comprehension had to go through. You wonder. You wonder. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. She knew she was at her end and she knew the, uh, you know, the, you know <laughs> when you take on those risks, yeah. you know, people can't get to you fast enough. No. It just, you just can't. No. So uh, even a helicopter deployed out of Concord is an hour flight. Yeah. 
an hour flight. And if they can fly. If they can. <laughs> so. Yeah. And they, they wouldn't have certainly done that night. No. So. I think they couldn't the next day. I mean, obviously, that's another call we made. Right. And they just couldn't couldn't do it. Right. So. You know, and I remember uh, when I talked to Charlie talking about the wind and stuff, you know, it didn't seem so bad down. The sun was out. Like you said, it was yeah. a nice bluebird day. But I'm like, I pointed up on that ridge, and I'm like, look at that ridge, and it was a total whiteout. Mm-hmm. You know, and you could see that from Gorham, from the royalty. You could look up on the ridges and see that it was a total whiteout up there. Mm-hmm. And it was just such an extreme when it didn't seem so bad down on the lower end. Yeah. And like you said, we were always looking for that hope. Maybe she bailed off on this side and that side and sent teams below tree line to address that while getting teams ready to go above tree line when the weather opportunity opened itself up and rescuers could safely go there. Yeah. And I think yeah. we were on the cusp of sending people there too. Mm-hmm. So we sent very equipped teams, very professional teams to, to to that location and then brought her back home. Yep. So, but certainly one of the ones that's going to stick in my mind uh, with my uh, my career mark and as, as managers, as, as risk takers, as, you know, the, the, when you start off, you know, like you said, hiking, you, you appreciate the ones that are just off the charts. You're yeah. just, this is, this is one that's off the charts, one that will always stick with me. I think you'll um, stick with everybody. <laughs> right. Everybody was involved, and that's why I want people to know. I want to to, to know what the risk you are taking in those weathers and that the, the risk Kate took mm-hmm. and the, the price she paid and the, the lessons learned, too. Yeah. And and another thing to point out, I think it's it's key to point out, is she's not the only one. That no. We, we, <laughs> there was a book written about her that because of her background and, and right. struck a fancy, but there's been more people that mm-hmm. don't get the the press, so to speak, that she got. Right. Yeah. And I, and it's funny because I always, it's that type A personality yeah. that has planned this for this day to do this. And I'm going to climb to the top of Mount Washington, no matter what, because that's in my planning book and mm-hmm. that's what I am. And it's that type A personality. And I've been there. I understand it. I've gotten, you know, to, to almost the summit of Jefferson and it clouded in on me on a, on a you know, on May <laughs> day. And I'm like, I'm too close to give up now, and I'm thinking this is exactly what other people do. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> this is the decision that they make, you know, yeah. and the gear you bring on based on the weather forecast that you look at. But it is so different above treeline. They can tell you one thing, and I, that it was supposed to be a sunny, nice day that day. And when I got up there, that cloud blank flew in. I bet it dropped ten degrees. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, you idiot! You didn't bring enough, and mm-hmm. you you know better. But I wasn't that far from the top. So, and it blew out, but I was, I was like, well, what was I thinking? I'm not going to do this, but I'm that personality likes to achieve my goals. And I, I can think back on many, many, a, a search and rescue mission for those types of people yep. uh, where they just, and they're very goal orientated and very successful people. And that's why they push themselves and they think they can push themselves against mother nature. And uh, we end up rescuing them. And unfortunately, uh, Kate paid with her life doing similar things. Mm-hmm. And now we pick back up with my interview with Ty Gagne. Because we had those discussions, I said, you know, do this, do that. Have you done this? Have you done that? And Mark's very squared away. He has most of it already rolling and already made those calls. Um, he has a plan for the evening because he has no intention of going home. He's going to be checking trailheads. I've already had several personal locator beacon devices location so he's going to just go from um, one side of the mountain to the other in hopes that kate is bailing out and that she's going to be at one of these areas and he's going to find her before but and a good thing to a stay awake and stay busy and feel like you're accomplishing things so and he's got some dead time after he's made all these calls so he he's still out searching even though nobody else is I got there a little early. We were planned on 7. I think I got there at 6. And I just remember rolling over that ridge. I, 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 later that day, I took a picture of it, and I, I think it's in your book, actually. Um, of, yeah, I have it, yeah. Yeah, so I, I took a picture of it. But just the, the wind and the snow that was blowing up over, coming up over Gorham Hill, it was just blowing and shaking the truck. It was a truck-shaking day. Uh, Mark and I met at Randolph Fire, and then we went over to Appalachia because you want to put your command post in proximity to where the incident is. It's just easier. People are going to leave their vehicles there, and they're going to start hiking from there. That's a good location, so we went over. I'll never forget, as we got there, a gust blew, and it was a total, total whiteout. And we're still talking winds, you know, 50 miles an hour and picking up snow to, to a total whiteout. And Mark just looks at me and was like, 
yeah, I don't think this is going to work. <laughs> and it was. Yeah. It was absolutely not going to work. We retreated to Randolph Fire, which was kind of in the lee of the, of the wind, but still windy. I mean, I still remember sitting in that command post and having the command post rock back and forth. The, the relationships that we have with the fire departments uh, statewide are just incredible. Those people are such a resource to us, uh, open up their facilities to us, um, help us with search and rescue. Uh, Gorham helps. Uh, certainly uh, Twin Mountain is a huge help when it comes to search and rescue. I can't, you know, say enough about the relationships we have built over the years with those fire departments. They're they're priceless, and this is no different. And we, you know, we got to get changed. And importance of getting changed in a warm building, and, and then going out into negative that day, probably negative forty five degrees with wind chill and without wind chill, you know, is substantial because you're holding your heat, you're retaining your heat already. So, so important to get dressed in a warm atmosphere, which uh, the fire department provided for us. That's where we started. Um, the command post actually came in from Concord, rolled in. We parked it right beside, although there wasn't a whole lot of back and forth that day between their fire department and the command post because because of the conditions, it was windy and cold, and we, we, we stayed where we were. Search managers stayed inside the command post. It's a mobile command post, like kind of like an 18-wheeler type thing. And uh, the rescuers were getting assigned and organized inside the fire department. Uh, Lieutenant Goss was uh, in charge of a lot of that, organizing the teams, uh, working with those teams and getting their assignments. We had all the, the, the missions already planned out prior to it was just getting the the team members into it so and i've probably gone beyond your question (laughs) no no you've you've uh, set the stage what uh obviously not speaking for for other search managers but you've done so many of these what are some of the things that you worry about um as you're getting teams together and then as teams are heading out Uh, and it's so hard i learned early on as a search manager you know, when you look at a map, it's easy for me to give those assignments. And I'll go back to a, a mission early on. I, I, I gave out all these missions and everything, and I gave these two AMC girls a mission. And they weren't back yet. It was like 7 p.m. And I'm like, you know, where the, where the heck are, are these girls? Well, then I looked at it a little closer. I gave them 19 miles to hike. 19 miles. And they were fit as fiddles, and they rolled in about 7.30 that night, happy as could be. But... I guess I didn't realize that I gave them 19 miles when I did that. Everybody else was back. So it's easy when you look at a map and kind of glance at it. And I didn't do the distance on that one or didn't think it was that big a deal. Looked at the terrain and thought it was. But it took a very, very long time. And these girls were fit as a fiddle and fast hikers. They were they were already deployed by the AMC as hiking. So they were in great shape. And they did it very, very efficiently and fast. But if I gave that to somebody else, I probably would have been waiting 24 hours for them. So when, when you look at the map, you've got to really look at the terrain. And mapping technology has increased so much, and I've watched it. As, you, know, you get that 3D look. It doesn't hurt to look at a 3D look as a search manager to understand the elevations. It, it's, it's easy to look at those lines because those lines are flat. They tell you elevation, but sometimes it doesn't click upstairs. So getting that 3D model out and just looking at those terrains, being on some of those uh, places, you know, I know what the conditions are. The Castle Ridge Trail, oh my goodness, I, that's one of the ones I despise in the whites because it's just like a castle up and down. It's like climbing on the ramparts of a castle. And uh, yeah, that takes a long, long time and it is brutal on search and rescuer. Knowing that and having been there, I, I take that into a, account and I, I, geez, I avoid that trail unless they're on that trail, if at all possible when it comes to carryouts. Although through my tenure, we've had to have carryouts on that trail trying to avoid those sections and just looking at a map because you're not there you need to rely on the people that are and that's one thing that came through with the matrasova incident was uh you have to rely on those people on the ground and even though you have expectations of them when they get there and they say they can't do something accept it accept it and that's they're there they're in person and as a search manager you have to because otherwise you endanger your rescuers. And I think that's what everybody worries the most about is endangering a rescuer and actually losing a rescuer would be traumatic for, you know, that's, that's one of my biggest fears always was losing an officer, losing an, a search and rescue member. Uh, so that's, that's always in the back of our heads. And that day, 
we just had the coldest, you know, second coldest place on earth. And we're sending out search and rescue crews into this highly capable, highly trained people. But again, even those people can get in trouble. And when we come back next time, we will have the conclusion of the Kate Matrasova case. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from Game Wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves Game Wardens. This is Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. You're listening to the Waypoint Podcast Network, brought to you in part by HuntStand, the number one hunting and land management app. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern, presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.